Well, good morning. I bring greetings from Grace Fellowship Church, Don Mills. We pray for you. And I was just talking to Brad Simpson, who has helped with worship, and he was so happy to hear I'm coming. It's been neat to know that we could have a partnership as churches in the gospel in this city. And this morning, Peter has asked me to speak specifically about work outside of the city, uh, even outside of the borders of Canada. What's the biblical justification for engaging in foreign missions as a church? So I'm directly seeking to deal with that topic. Now, I've devoted the last nine years of my life to helping plant a church in Toronto, so I fully believe in local ministry, mission, and evangelism, of course. But the question uh, that I've been presented and I'd like to talk about today has more to do with, well, what about... As a church family, how are we to think about other parts of the world and regions, especially that are even more needy? But let us pray before we look to the word. Father, I'm reminded of that passage that teaches that teaches us that you are good that you are kind and loving. And your loving kindness appeared to us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of your mercy, your rich, free, indiscriminate mercy. And we pray that you would help me to preach with a heart full of mercy toward your people, and we pray that you would help all of us who are listening. Oh, give us ears to hear, a heart that is receptive to receiving the implanted word, and we ask that it might bear fruit in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, should... Uh, should Royal York Baptist Church do something to help spread the gospel and strengthen churches beyond the borders of Canada? What does the Bible say? What is the biblical basis for doing something to help propel the advance of the kingdom of light to other regions where the darkness is darker. There are many portions of Scripture that address this issue, but we're going to consider the climax of a book that ends with a pouting prophet under a plant. <laughs> the book of Jonah ends with an object lesson with this Plant. The plant is meant to say something about God's mercy and missions. And my prayer is that this lesson about a plant would be like a lamp to guide you as a church family as you engage, continue to engage in four missions. Now, Jonah would rather die than be led by the light of God's mercy. 
In fact, he found a problem in God's mercy. Jonah's failure to even begin to do missions work, and then his failure as a missionary was because of his view of God. I don't know what you think of God's mercy, but we are about to marinate in it. There are two steps to our marination. Yes, two parts to this message. First, we are just going to behold the mercy of God. We're going to marinate. I learned how to marinate chicken in college. A friend of mine told me. He, I was always cooking boneless chicken breasts just out of the freezer into the oven. He's like, put the thing in oil overnight. Put it in your fridge. And you can, I learned you can put salt in there and seasoning. It really helps. We're going to marinate in the mercy of God. And then secondly, we're going to look at some application. We're going to spend much more time marinating in the book of Jonah, considering God's mercy. For those of you clock watchers and note takers, the first part is longer than the second. So, first, beholding God's mercy. We're going to marinate and soak in this good stuff throughout seven scenes. There are seven scenes in the book of Jonah, and I am going to rapidly move through the first five. Like, I mean really fast. And then in, 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 in scene six, we're going to slow down and we're going to camp out even longer in scene seven. Here we go, scene one. God commissions Jonah. He calls him to go to Nineveh, but Jonah runs away. And how does God respond? Welcome to scene two. Jonah is with the Gentiles. Gentile simply means the non-Jewish people. These Gentiles are mariners. They are seamen. They spend their lives, most of their time, at sea. So how does God respond to Jonah's self-imposed exile of running away? Well, God goes after him. He causes a terrifying storm that threatens Jonah and the lives of the mariners. Consequently, they cast lots to find out who is responsible for the storm. For those of you familiar with the story, you know. It's Jonah. And the mariners are terrified, but Jonah, get this, he would rather die than call out to God on their behalf. He tells them to throw him overboard, ensuring them that if they do, God will save them. So... They don't want to, but eventually they do grab this, his legs, his arms, and they throw him overboard. And the storm ends. And they become worshipers of Yahweh while Jonah sinks to the bottom of the sea. That leads, leads us to scene three. Jonah finally prays to God. When Jonah hits rock bottom, he finally calls out to God to save him. And instantly and mercifully, God appoints a large fish to save Jonah. And there's more. Welcome to scene four. God commissions Jonah. Remember scene one, God commissioned Jonah. Scene four, parallel, God commissions Jonah again. This time, in Nineveh, Jonah does arrive Welcome to scene five. Do you remember scene two? Jonah was with the Gentiles. Again, in scene five, Jonah is with the Gentiles. We have a parallel structure to the book. And in chapter three, verse four, this is what Jonah preaches. All he says. 
Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Guys, this is the opposite of, you know, in, in our day and age, people talk about, you know, preachers who, who what's called easy believism. You may have heard of this. You know, you try to make the gospel more appealing, make it easier for people to follow. Jonah is the opposite. Prophets of Yahweh always speak on behalf of Yahweh. Think of Moses going into Pharaoh. Thus says Yahweh. He doesn't even say who Yahweh is. And the prophets of Yahweh always tell them, if they re- here's how to repent, and if you repent, here's how to be saved. Jonah doesn't do that. He doesn't want them to believe. But the Ninevites repent. <laughs> Look at verse 5. The, the, this is chapter 3, verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. Same words are used in Genesis 15 of Abraham, who believed God. And then they begin a citywide fast, even getting the animals to fast, because they don't really know what the Bible says about how, what to do. And look at God's merciful response in chapter 3, verse 10, if you have your Bibles open. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented. So check this out. God was pleased with their repentance. But what about Jonah? Well, welcome to scene 6. Remember I said, we slow down a bit in scene 6 and 7. Again, Jonah prays to God. Remember scene three? Jonah prayed to God from the belly of the fish. Scene six, Jonah prays to God. I'm going to marinate here. God relents. Listen to chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. A literal reading of the original goes like this. Your your Bibles might even have a footnote there. It was exceedingly evil to Jonah. God's mercy, it wasn't just evil in Jonah's eyes. It was exceedingly evil. What God did in not destroying Nineveh was exceedingly evil, so full of anger, full of anger, Jonah prays, O Yahweh, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I ran away. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why? Keep reading verse 2. Jonah says, I knew That you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. For those of you who enjoy literature, this is incredible. The king of Nineveh has a fast and says to the people, who knows? (laughs) Who knows? Maybe God will relent. He doesn't know. Think of the irony. There's someone in the story who knows. Jonah's like, I knew it. Oh. He's actually quoting scripture when he prays. This is from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. But he omits a part of the verse. The part that says, Yahweh will by no means clear the guilty. And the silence 
That the silence on that portion of the verse speaks volumes. It's like when I ask my kids to go to bed. You can ask them after service. This happens all the time. They're not always in here when I'm preaching, so I like this. This is good. When I ask them, did you brush your teeth and go to the bathroom? And if one of them says, I brush my teeth, you know what the silence means, right? They have not yet visited the toilet. Well, when Jonah says that God is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and then that silence speaks volumes. See, Jonah has a problem with God. Jonah believes he's having mercy on the guilty. He's saying, you're not just. Your mercy's too big. One author writes, Jonah thinks that God's indiscriminate mercy has undermined his justice. Jonah thinks that God's indiscriminate mercy has undermined his justice. So what's your view of God? If you believe God's mercy is indiscriminate, it will never be too big. But if God is merciful towards those who've earned it, haven't done as many bad things, you might find yourself like Jonah often. This problem is so disturbing for Jonah that in verse 3, he says to God, take my life. By the way, that's the opposite of Moses who loved God's mercy and basked in it. When Moses was with God enjoying his mercy and God's about to kill Israel, what does Moses say? Take, take my life and spare Israel. And God's like, no, 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 no. Because Moses knew the mercy of God. Jonah is the opposite of Moses. That's what the author is doing for us here. Jonah's like, I'd rather die than watch those people repent. He can't handle it. It's morally outrageous. Scandalous. You may be wondering, well, why is he so upset? Like, you know, shouldn't we want people to be saved? Well, the Ninevites weren't exactly friendly to anyone, especially the Jewish people. There's a museum in Britain you could visit today that displays artifacts of Assyrian kings who boasted of their cruelty. Skinning people. Burning vast numbers of people alive. Cutting off heads, and I'll stop there, but the list is longer. In Nahum, if you read the prophet Nahum, through Nahum, just a generation or two later, God speaks of the evil of Nineveh, calling it a city of blood. You may have seen pictures of Hitler's Germany and just corpses. Nahum writes of the corpses. Nineveh, this is like, I don't know, think of modern-day ISIS. Think of, this is kind of some sort of equivalent of just absolute evil. And the Israelites would not have escaped their cruelty. Can you imagine God not just saving ISIS members, but even ringleaders, the whole movement? You'd think for a second... Okay, on one hand, that's good, but they've ruined so many people's lives. They've, they've ruined people's lives who, who didn't even get to know God's mercy. Now they get to know God's mercy. This, does this really, is this really fair? 
Welcome to the book of Jonah. That's precisely what the Spirit has inspired the author to write about. Does the immensity of God's mercy unsettle you at all? If so, you're probably starting to see it for what it is. God commissions Jonah. Jonah with the Gentiles. Jonah prays. God again commissions Jonah. Jonah again is with the Gentiles. And again, Jonah prays. Welcome to the final scene, which sticks out. It's meant to cry out for your attention because it's the key to unlocking the meaning of the book. Scene 7. We're still just marinating in God's mercy, my friends. We're going to camp out in this final scene for a bit here. The climax of the book of Jonah. Verse 5 of chapter 4. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade to see what would become of the city. Now, the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. God's object lesson focuses on the plant. And the plant symbolizes mercy. The plant symbolizes mercy. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It's better for me to die than to live. So the worm that destroys the plant, along with the sun and the wind, symbolizes judgment. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe, the wind, the worm, and the sun. Sounds like a... Yeah, you know what it sounds like. The, mercy, God, the plant symbolizes mercy, but the worm symbolizes judgment. Remember... <laughs> Jonah likes the plant. (laughs) He likes mercy. The plant saved him from the scorching heat of the sun. But Jonah doesn't like it when the mercy is removed. No, he doesn't like it when the plant is removed. You see, he actually doesn't like judgment on himself. He likes mercy. When judgment triumphs over mercy, Jonah gets angry. Now remember, Jonah rejoiced when God mercifully saved him in chapter 2 with the fish, right? But he doesn't feel the same way when God saves the Ninevites. Verse 9. God said to Jonah, God's mercy. God is just right there. Think of God's relentless mercy to this self-righteous prophet. We see God's mercy to the Gentiles. We also see it towards the biblically literate representative of Yahweh. God's right there. Verse 9. God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes. I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Verse 10. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. 
And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Look closely at the beginning of verse 10, if you will. You pity the plant. And then look at the beginning of verse 11. Should not I pity Nineveh? 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. Now, depending on what Bible study you have, there are many interesting ideas of what this means. The question we always have to ask is, well, the first readers, how would they have understood this, who the author is writing to? They know what the Bible says about the right hand and the left. Listen to Joshua chapter 1, verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all that the law of Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left. Or the famous passage on the kings of Israel. The king of Israel was to read the law, to keep all the words of the law that, and I quote, Deuteronomy 17, 20, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left. We could go on and on with biblical references. The first readers know what it means when people don't know their right hand from their left. Turning to the right or the left means breaking God's law. Those who don't know their right hand from their left don't know when they're breaking God's law because they don't know God's law. They don't know the name of Yahweh. They don't know the Bible. They don't know anything about the Bible. God says, should I not pity large groups of human beings who don't know anything about me? What a question. In fact, the Ninevites, in the context, they had the cattle fasting. I think that's why the, book of the, end, the end of the book says, and also much cattle. In the Old Testament, God's prescribed worship was substitutionary sacrifice of animals. They don't even know how to begin to worship Yahweh. God's mercy is indiscriminate. And if no one can earn it, <laughs> who could be disqualified from receiving it? That's worth thinking about. In fact, the worse you are, <laughs> the more glory God's mercy gets praised in saving you. Think of Romans. Paul says God saves. Why does God save the Gentiles? So that they would glorify his mercy. God is saying, should I not have mercy on large groups of people who are really evil and they know nothing about me? The mariners knew nothing about Yahweh. The Ninevites knew nothing of Yahweh. Do you see 
how the Spirit of God has inspired this book to be put together. What a rich contribution to our canon on the ocean of God's mercy. May more and more people jump into that ocean and swim and enjoy because his mercy is big and it's good and it's free and it's rich, it's scandalous, it's relentless, and it's very personal. The Apostle Paul could say, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. You see him going after Jonah relentlessly. Well, we've beheld God's mercy. And I know I've been asked to address the topic of foreign missions. And Pastor Peter, I know you will not be upset if I take one minute to give a bit of rapid-fire application on things that don't pertain to foreign missions. Would that be okay if I did that for two minutes? Two minutes, that's all. Two quick points before we talk about foreign missions. God's mercy is relentless. I don't know, you all look like nice people here. I've pastored long enough to know there are a number of people I'm sure you feel you've sinned too much. You feel you've been through good seasons spiritually, but you sinned, you got lazy, you're not reading your Bible as much as you should, you feel like you're not praying as much as you should, you feel like you're kind of blowing it and God's disappointed in you. I want you to know that God has sent me here to speak through me to you to say, no, he's merciful toward you, he loves you, he's for you. It hasn't stopped in his mercy, it's it's indiscriminate. not, not that it doesn't matter that you know, you're not reading your Bible and maybe you've hardened your heart. That stuff matters, but there's a sense in which it, it, it doesn't mean you're disqualified from God's mercy. That hasn't changed. He's for you. He's relentless in his mercy for you. Okay, that was the first thing I wanted to say. And the second thing is this, that if, if you've been marinating in God's mercy, the problem with Jonah is that he didn't understand God's mercy is like a birthday cake. It's for you. But it's not only for you. He enjoys the cake for himself, but he doesn't want other people to have it. If you really marinate in this mercy, you will extend it to others. Think of Matthew 18, the parable of the unmerciful servant. What a challenge. I don't, those of you who are married, those of you who have kids, those of you in the workplace, those of you who interact with other human beings <laughs> with any degree of regularity, are we not inclined to be discriminant in the extension of our mercy? We are, aren't we? I know I am. My kids, you can ask them. I have to regularly ask them for forgiveness, for discriminant mercy. Ask my wife. But as we soak in this mercy, let the oil come in. Is it penetrating you at all? Is it getting into the heart? It will express itself in being merciful and forgiving. Okay, now. But the climax and heart of the book doesn't end there. Those applications are warranted. I could spend hours on those points. But actually, the book does end with God saying, shouldn't I care about large groups of people who know nothing about me? 
And there might even be a temptation today to take those two application points and say, that's my take-home, thank you, Pastor Paul, and not think about, actually, the ultimate climax of the book, which really does center on all of those large groups of people who know nothing about God. And this application now is directed corporately, collectively, for the church at large. I have four ideas. I'm going to reach into the book of Jonah now, the, the bag of Jonah, and take some seeds and scatter them, okay? And may God give growth and cause plants to grow that are tapped into the plant of God's mercy in the garden of Royal York Baptist Church. So, I say just do something, and I'm going to cast seeds, and I understand from talking to Peter that you, are, you already are doing things. And I, heard, I learned this morning when I walked in some of you are praying for me and my family daily already, so I, maybe I'm just trying to assure you that some of the things you're already doing are biblically justified, and you should be encouraged in doing it. Here we go. Number one, send people. Four different ideas. By the way, I have more than four ideas, but I will limit it. You will be thankful that I will limit it to four, right? And by the way, the first one's much longer than the following three, okay? Just again, for those of you taking notes, send people. This is pretty simple, isn't it? God sent Jonah to people. God sends people to people. I think sometimes we don't think about that enough. God sends people to people in other places that don't have knowledge of the Bible. And consider the sending principle. God himself does this. 1 John 4, 14. The Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Or you may be familiar with Galatians 4. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. A verse or two later, and He sent the Spirit of His Son. <laughs> He's in descending. Well, the greater Jonah, the greater Jonah, you know, Jesus said something greater than Jonah is here in Matthew 12. Jesus wants us to compare Jesus and Jonah. We don't have the luxury of time to consider all of the comparisons. But think of this one. The greater Jonah didn't resist God's call to be sent. He went low. Think of Philippians 2. To become a human. To reach those people who needed to be saved. And he too, that man, that man, was sleeping on a boat. Only two men in the Bible sleep on boats. And another man was sleeping on a boat, just happens to be during a storm where there were other terrified seamen. Do you think the Spirit of God is intentionally connecting these paths? I think he is. But on that occasion, the answer to calming the storm was not him being cast into the sea, the greater Jonah himself commanded the wind and the waves to be still. Yes, Jesus is the greater Jonah because he himself is fully God and truly human. God is into sending even his son to take on human flesh to save us, not just in 40 days with judgment on Nineveh, but judgment on the whole world. God's heart is moved. As we read earlier in the prayer, just this, ocean of compassion. Jesus is the greater Jonah who embraced God's call for you. For you. 
Might I add, there was no other way for you to be saved unless that greater Jonah embraced the call of his father to suffer and die as he went low, not just down, down, down to the bottom of the sea. And to be raised, being saved by a fish. No, he didn't come out of a fish. He came out of the tomb. He suffered unto death on our behalf. Voluntary, sacrificial substitution in love for you. You know, the church in Antioch, those early followers of Christ, they got this sending principle. There was a multi-ethnic church in Antioch, and it says in Acts they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Listen to this, verses 2 and 3. The Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Sent them off. The Spirit called the church in Antioch to send Saul and Barnabas to who? Read Acts. People who had never heard. Some of them, when they heard the preaching, they actually started worshiping Paul and Barnabas. They thought they were gods. They didn't know anything. Why? Acts 17. Because God is calling all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. That man is Jesus. Now, the church in Antioch was moved by the Spirit. Notice, I've just been talking about sending, 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 sending. You know, that might mean helping send Sarah John to India. I don't know. That might mean helping the McDonald's get to Serbia. It could mean sending Pastor Peter and some of you on a short-term exploratory trip in a year or two from now, for three or four days or a week. You know, I'm just thinking out loud with you, just throwing seeds so that some of you could go and think and pray and learn to think about how to keep working the garden of God's mercy at Royal York Baptist Church. May many plants of mercy touch and bless the local people, but what about beyond the borders of Canada as well? Sending, sending, sending. And maybe even someone one day long term. Well, as I said, the first idea is much longer than the next three. And the next three are entailed. One idea, if, if God's mercy is getting in and penetrating your heart, what do you do as a church? I say just do something. Something in the realm of sending. It's biblical. It's what God does. It's good. And with that comes, secondly, give financially. This is another principle. Getting people usually requires financial support to get them to where they need to go. The New Testament says a lot about this, and I understand you're already doing this, but just to affirm you in the good that you're doing, listen to this verse. Jesus said, Matthew 6, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your heart like God's is like, should I not have pity on people who know nothing about me? The Lord will move your heart to move your wallets. And it doesn't have to be towards Serbia. This is not like a a self-pitch. I could die tomorrow. COVID could go longer. McDonald's could never go to Serbia. This word remains. The world is much bigger than Serbia. And the spirit who spoke to the leaders in Antioch, he is alive today to speak to you and guide you as you lean into him 
and pray together and ask God for wisdom. And even when you have disagreements in the church about these things, oh, because that can happen. Pastor, long enough. What does the book of Jonah says when you're having disagreements on about what to do in missions? Be merciful toward one another. How terrible would that be to fight over missions when we're considering this heart of God? What a call to be merciful toward one another as you, as a church family, prayerfully think through what to do. Number three, pray globally. I'm just casting seeds. I've already heard you're praying. Praise God. Listen to this. Be encouraged. Jesus said in Matthew 9, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. That could mean praying for the nations. You know the book Operation World. I don't know how you practice this as a church, whether it's in your... I don't know. I, church life's weird with COVID, I know. <laughs> but I don't know what your habit was or what it will be. But I know at Grace Fellowship Church in Rexdale, when I was a member there, they had this great practice of, of their prayer meetings of always praying for a nation systematically, regularly. And that moved to Sunday morning pastoral prayer. But somehow, and I trust maybe you're doing this, but somehow in the diet of the church, be praying for the nations. And not only that, but also specific missionaries who are going out. So send people, give financially, pray globally, and this last one might surprise you. You can do this. Mobilize people. A number of you were mobilized from Grace Fellowship Church to come here. Let's think about this on the local level. You, was anyone here forced to come? <laughs> no, I see no hands. No one was forced to come. In fact, some of you, all it took was an awareness of the opportunity and the idea. And you, when you learned about the opportunity, I'm sure you prayed about it. You learned more about the opportunity. You visited, you prayed, you saw counsel, you prayed, and you were sent. Our experience is no different going to Serbia. Learned of an opportunity, started to pray about it, went to visit, learned some more, sought counsel, kept praying, and we're on that road. And here's what you can do as a church family. When you meet people who could be used in other parts of the world that are even darker, you can just ask them questions. Just put stones in their shoes, okay? You might meet someone who's really, who loves language. Some really solid Christian who is aspiring maybe to go to school to become an English prof. And that's good. We need good Christian English profs here. But did you know you could just ask, hey, did you know that there are 7,000 spoken languages in the world that don't have the Bible translated yet? Like if you love language, have you ever thought? Have you ever thought about being a Bible translator? Have you ever, have you ever looked into that? Well, let me send you a link. And just pray. Maybe the Lord won't lead that person. Have you ever thought even with your own kids as they dream about being mad scientists and pilots and professional sports players and policemen and all of these things? Have you ever asked your children? Have you, have you ever thought about maybe being a missionary? Missionary? Where would I go? I don't know. Why don't we, why don't we open that 
prayer book and learn about a country today. Pick, pick, pick one. You know my kids, you know who they love to pray for? They love to pray for Wales. Wales, and they laugh. What a name for a country. And then they want to pray for Turkey. And then Hungary. I think those are the top three countries getting the most prayer. I haven't arrived. We've actually gotten in the, out of that. We've been praying for Serbia so much lately. We haven't been praying, just to be transparent, for other nations lately. We had, lately, but we've had a period of a year or two of just regularly praying for the nations, just for like a couple minutes with the kids. I, I'm just trying to cast seeds into the seedbed of Royal Baptist Church, Royal York Baptist Church, because even no matter what your prayers are like and your giving is like, it's not like as if members of the church, you could be a mobilized army as you seek to be a blessing to Toronto, take Jonah 4, let it saturate your heart, and also as you meet people, just ask questions, send websites, get conversations going, because you know what can happen? There could be a pastor in the city who's been laboring for nine years, and he might get sent out to a place where no one is sending their resume. That doesn't make him any better. <laughs> we need people everywhere. But you could actually be a vessel in God's hand to just help with awareness of God's heart even beyond the borders of Canada. So send people, give financially, pray globally, mobilize people. Four ideas I've been throwing out there. I trust you are already doing these things May God help you as your heart is saturated with his mercy to keep doing these things and even more. I say, whatever you do, just do something for the sake of those who don't know their right hand from their left. And don't despise the day of small things. In God's garden, even tiny seeds grow into enormous trees where many people can find shade and discomfort. Can be, find shade from discomfort. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you that when your goodness and loving kindness appeared to us, we thank you that you saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to your mercy. We thank you that it is free, that it is rich, that it is indiscriminate, that it is relentless. Help us to delight in it. In Jesus' name, amen.